Father, we pray that you will just quieten our hearts. I do get distracted so easily, Lord, in the hustle and bustle and all the things that are going on, Father. So, But there's something you want to do. You want to change us to make us more like you, Jesus. So I pray that you'll open our hearts to you, to your word. May we receive it willingly, eagerly, allowing it to change us, putting off the old and putting on the new, walking in the Spirit. God, I pray that the words that come out are exactly what people need to hear, what I need to hear. But I pray mostly that you get every bit of the glory you deserve. You deserve it all, Jesus. You have given all a payment we cannot appreciate this side of heaven. And eternity will not be enough time to give you the praise that you do. You are that good. In your name we pray. Amen. So we're going to be talking about 1 Corinthians chapter 9. So it's a this whole message of Corinthians, Paul has written to the church. And as we've shared before, he has done this in response. A couple have raised questions, others have written letters to him, and so he is responding back to them to let them know concerns. So they go, hey, what about this? What about that? Just like how we have sometimes have questions, that's what's happening with Paul. And so he's addressing that. And as, we, as Pastor covered in chapter 8, you know, he talks to them about what kind of attitude members of a church, the body should have. So he's addressing, hey, sometimes you have to give up some things that you want for the benefit of somebody else. So being unselfish, considering others, okay, more than yourself. What does it mean to be selfless instead of being selfish? In chapter 9, he goes even further and this time makes it more personal. Okay, but you have to see, and, and we'll start with 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 to 6. He says, Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If I am not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. And then, my defense to those who examine me is this. Do we have no right to eat and drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife? As do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord, and Cephas, referring to Peter, of course. And is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? So you get a little bit that, almost not quite irony, but he's like, come on, guys. Okay, so... He basically addresses it from, you know, they raise the question, why should we support you? Why should we help you? Okay? And you'll get a little further and we'll talk a little bit more where he's working. And he talks about being a tent maker. And he says those who don't work shouldn't eat. So he still works. He doesn't just survive on um, the provisions and the offerings of others. He works to help support himself for the ministry. And they're thinking, well, if you have to work, how good are you? Okay? If you have to work, if you get it, you know, if you can't depend, if you don't have that much of a 
and acclaim and an audience or, or that much power. The other guys, they don't have to work and they get supported. You have to work to support your ministry then. You may not be that good. We sometimes have that same perspective. If it's for free, it must not be worth much. The more expensive it is, mm, then it's, ooh, got to have that. That's worth something. Okay? And Paul's saying, from that same attitude, just because I work doesn't mean I don't deserve that. And so he appeals to it on two grounds. Okay, first he says, like the others, he's an apostle. So how do we know he's an apostle? Let's look at Acts 22, verses 6 to 15. Now it happened as I journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon. Suddenly, a great light from heaven shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And those who were there with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. So I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Arise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all things which are appointed for you to do. And since I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus. Then a certain Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me, and he stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. At that same hour, I looked up at him. Then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. And then you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. So those last two lines, the God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one, referring to Jesus, and hear the voice of his mouth. Then he gets direct revelation from God. Okay? And that the purpose of that is to be a witness. And to be a witness to all men that you have seen and heard. That's what an apostle is. So, um, he talks more about, about that encounter of being in the seventh heaven. So there's other things that he had, and he has not even disclosed in Scripture all that the Lord has revealed to him at that time. But there's clearly an anointing. He's an apostle. There's like the initial 12 who are with Jesus. And then even in here, he talks about himself. And who's the other apostle he refers to? Barnabas. Probably lead one of the least acknowledged individuals in the New Testament. Okay? The son of encouragement. How he was the first one to give money to help bless the church. He gave his property. He gave it all. How he encouraged Paul. He took Paul under his wing and he's the one who helped Paul along. How when Paul and him got into an argument, and this was written after that argument, okay, Barnabas took John Mark under his wing and helped him along such that he becomes one of the authors of one of the Gospels and Paul later says an encouragement to him. Why am I saying that is... There is clear, Paul has justification to say that he's an apostle. And the second part that he talks about further is his appeal to them. He says, look at the stuff I did for you. I planted this church. 
I baptized the house of Stephanus. I was there with you, helping you and helping you along. Okay? And if anybody has that right, it would be me, for you are the seal of my apostleship. If anything has proof of what I've done, you are. So he then goes on, and in that, we can go back to 1 Corinthians 9 to 6. He talks about rights. Don't we have a right to eat and drink? Don't we have a right to take a believing wife? He says, he refers to, and at that time, many of the apostles had wives. We know that Peter did. That's what he refers to Cephas. But many of the others did. And Paul may have been married. I've talked about this before in 1 Corinthians 7 when we did that teaching. We're not sure. Uh, but certainly at this time, he was not married. And apparently neither was Barnabas. But he talks about, hey, if these guys get to do that, I'm at least of that same status. Don't I have these same things? You've made these expectations of me that you think that I should go through when they may be unreasonable. So, let's, just, let's talk about some of the other rights that he talks about. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 7 to 14. Whoever goes to war at his own expense. Whoever goes to war at his own expense. Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit? Or who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock? Do I say these things as a mere man? Or does not the law say the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about? Or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt. This is written that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. If we had sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but we endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Do you not know those who minister the holy things eat of other things of the temple, and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. So, they're questioning, why do I really have to support you? And Paul hits them with everything. He doesn't give them just one reason. He doesn't give them two reasons. He gives them seven or eight reasons. Again and again, it's, there's a Latin term for that, of argumentum a fiori, fiori, which basically means even so, like even more, even more, even more. Like it's no doubt, point after point. When you weigh things, pros and cons, he goes point after point after point. And basically he says, he uses the example here of, if you're a soldier, you don't pay for your own military equipment. You don't go to war and you have to buy your own gun. You're, an air, you're a fighter pilot. You're not having to buy your own F-22 or F-35. That's supplied for you. It's taken care of. Your food and everything's covered. Okay? If you're a farmer, you get to eat that. I, I remember even when I was picking blueberries up in Michigan, you know, we ate some of the blueberries as we were bagging some of that. But it's very common. If you have your own, you're picking your own food and eating it. You get to get that from what you do. Um. And then he goes on from the law of Moses about the oxen. That's in Deuteronomy 
chapter 25, verse 4, and he says, if you have an ox and you're using them to thresh the grain, they get to eat while they do it. That's expected. And then he adds about spirituals. If, if, if we're giving you all this spiritual blessing, if I'm helping you, don't I deserve something more in return? Something at least material? Something for what I'm doing? Is my work? You're going to take it for granted? And that's what he's addressing. They have taken him for granted. Again, he said, if others are getting stuff from you, why am I treated any differently? He refers then to the priest take the offering bread. You know, if you remember when David went and he ate the offering bread, and he wasn't supposed to because really the only ones who get to eat that was, was the priests. Okay? You can see how that was abused with Eli's son, Hophni and Phinehas, when they took the choice of stuff and just demanded that instead of allowing it as a gift. And the last part he says, the Lord even commands that. The Lord even says, this is what you're expected to do. So, they're not being obedient, and they're not grateful. They expect him to do that. They have a sense of entitlement. They've devalued him. They've questioned him. They've really not esteemed him from the work that he did. And he's telling them, hey, really, that's not fair. But he goes on even further, and the part that he goes on further is the next part in verses 15 to 18. But I have used... None of these things. Nor have I written these things that it should be done so to me. For it would be better for me to die than that anyone should make my boasting void. For for if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. For necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this willingly, I'll have a reward. But if, I, if against my will I have been entrusted with the stewardship, what is my reward then? That when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge, that I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. So basically, he first builds a case saying, hey, these are the rights that I have. And then he says, yeah, I want them. I'm not taking them. Okay? Because... God has laid something on me. I'm not doing this for you. I'm doing it for Him. Okay? And it's not just something, even if I was willing, I I can't help but do this for Him. What He's done to me, I have to pour myself out for Him. I have to give Him all. I have to do it all. Whatever He asks me to do, I have to do. Okay? And He's setting that example. Before He talks about what they should do, He also now says personally, this is the burden the Lord has laid upon me. Okay, that I can't do this. I don't want to do it that you're thinking of doing it for the money that you're giving me, for the support you're giving me. I don't want anybody to blemish the message. I don't want you to think that I'm doing it for personal gain. That's the question. You know, do we do it? What's our motivation? More than anything, the gospel is really about what is our motivation? What's the heart? Okay, Jesus, so that's why before in the Old Testament, it's a law that condemned us. The question with the Pharisees and Jesus was addressing is, where is your heart? What are you focused on? What's your priorities? He admonishes them and tells them, look, these are my rights. These things you should, in your heart, want to do for me, which you're not really doing, and you're questioning it. But that doesn't matter. What matters is what he wants of me. 
whether you do what you want to do or not, isn't what drives my motivation. I want you to get this, that it's about, I have to be obedient to him. Okay? So he doesn't want to do it for support. He doesn't want to make, he said, I, I like the word. He basically describes himself as a slave, and he says that repeatedly. I am a slave to the gospel. So, Jesus talks about, again, we are a bondservant to ourself and the world and pride, or we are a bondservant to Jesus. We don't have a choice. We have to serve one master or another. You think you're your own master, but our own master, we are a cruel master to ourselves, our flesh, our body is. And when we get that, like Paul did, then you can live surrendered. So all the actions that he was doing, it's kind of neat to see that when you look at all First Corinthians, because in everything that he's admonishing them, in everything that he's encouraging them, in everything that he's telling them, he first examined himself. He first looked to see himself whether he was being obedient to it. Okay, these are the choices. And so nothing is said and nothing is communicated which, without him first addressing it. So you have to realize from that perspective, and that's why he points it out. Look, I'm telling this for your sake. You need to do this as a reflection of your heart, not for my sake. So, um, so that's so. I don't know if I've made this as any clearer than that. What drives Paul, and what he's inviting us to do is decide where, what is our motivation to do anything that we do. His motivation was to share the gospel. You know, we go to work, we have jobs. Some people are, you know, Pastor Glenn and Pastor Jeff are in full-time ministry. Others, the rest of us, work a secular job. Okay? The rest of us work in some secular job. And what's our motivation in that job? Is our motivation in that job to build our own empire to build our own future, to build our own security, or is our motivation somehow to build the kingdom? And in all honesty, most of us are divided there. I am. There's times I want to build things for myself. Other times I do want to build it for the kingdom. The walk of the believer is to become more and more surrendered to God's plan of the kingdom. To see that all things that we do are ministry. It's not just what we do here on Wednesday nights or Sunday mornings or some mission thing you do. Everything you do unto the Lord. So then Paul talks about that attitude. What does it mean to be everything unto the Lord? And let's move to the next verses. Verses 19 to 23. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews, I became a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law, as without law. Not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak, I've become as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be a partaker of it with you. 
Now, Paul is not saying, you know, I'm a chameleon. I just change who I am so I can fit in everywhere. Okay? So I can get along with everybody and just meld in and everything's okay. He's not saying, I'm just trying to not ruffle any feathers and, you know, just uh, fit in wherever it is, as in Rome, do as the Romans do kind of thing. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, the gospel is so important to him, it is his, as the French say, a raison d'etre, which means reason to be, sharing the message, that he will do whatever it takes to get that message across. And if you look at that, um, to the Jews as those under the law. So he talked about those under the law. He's referring to, obviously, the Pharisaical Jews. And in Acts 21, 23 to 26, okay, So he's talking about four men who have t- taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them. And I'll let you read that. But basically what he does is he says, I will take the Nazarite vow and I will go through the pur- purification process even though I don't think it's absolutely necessary because I can reach out to people who believe in that. I will take that custom. Okay? Let's look at Acts 16.3. Paul takes Timothy. Okay? Circumcised him because of the Jews who were in the region, for they all knew that Timothy's father was Greek. His mother was Jewish, and in Jewish custom, if your mother is Jewish, you're Jewish. Okay? So you get it from your mother's line. Okay? But Timothy wasn't circumcised. So Paul says, okay, we'll circumcise him so he can fit in and be able to minister to Jews because they wouldn't hear the message any other way. Okay, so he's basically saying, doing all things means what do I need to do to meet the custom of where things are? That may mean some of the custom dress that we have to wear. That means some of the language that we have to speak. That means meeting people at where they are. And that's what Paul says, wherever they are, I'm going to do that because the gospel is that important. Now, he will not do anything unbiblical in the sense of something that's wrong. Okay, it says, depart from evil, flee from evil. It was not doing wickedness, okay? So it's not like you're where to go into strip joints and do that to share the gospel. That's not what God is saying at all. That's not what Paul's talking about, okay? But that may mean when they leave the strip joint that you talk with them and meet with them and have a conversation with them before they go in, okay? So you have to be careful. It's not a stomach block for you in that. But the point is, there may be conversation that God wants to do in a way that doesn't make you stumble, but that becomes a blessing for others. Paul was willing to offend people over the gospel. Okay? But he only wanted to offend them. He only wanted to offend them only about the gospel. So he didn't want them to have any other offense. No other reason to say, hey, no, I can't, I can't listen to him. Some people are so focused on politics, for example, that because of what's happening politically, and I noticed that with my daughter. We've had some, and my daughter's come down and visited, and people want to have political conversations that she doesn't agree with. And that was a stumbling block in sharing the message with her, that she doesn't want to visit with my Christian brothers here. She goes, can we just have a family time? She doesn't want to deal with that political conversation. And we don't realize that we're doing that because we're not aware of the conversation that we have. So that's a stumbling block. People support, or some are supporting of a particular lifestyle. I, I believe in, you know, if you believe in Second Amendment rights, it becomes a stumbling block. 
you may want to do that, that's fine, but there are people who may not want to hear that. We have to be sensitive to that part. What are we there for? And it's hard because when we're fellowshipping, socializing, you become unguarded. But we need to be aware of that as long as there's people who don't know the gospel, there's an opportunity for testimony. We just need to be sensitive to that. Why are we there? What's the intention? What's the purpose? Are we there for ourselves? Are we there for others? And that's hard because we're still fleshly. A lot of times we're there for ourselves. But just something to be mindful for and to see, hey, look around. What's, what's going on here? Is everybody on board? So, the last part here is on verses 24 to 27. And here Paul talks about what it is to be an athlete. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run but one? receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for that prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore, I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight but not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. So back then at that time in the Greek games, that's when they had the original Olympic Games, you know, they would run a race and they'd get like a, you know, a wreath made of leaves. That's the crown they would get. Okay? Sometimes celery, it's nothing very dramatic. And that's the price. Now they get the fame with it. And we're talking about the crown that we will have in heaven, which will be imperishable. And he says, get your priorities straight. But it also means what you need to do. And the challenge for all of us, myself as much if not more than others, is what does it mean to discipline our body? And the Greek word for that word, you know, the translation, we say discipline. But the word is to give it a black eye. Almost like, what do you mean to give yourself a black eye that you would fight through. Now, we're not talking like what the monks did in the 4th century of self-flagellation like they did. They took that to an extreme. That's not what it's about, okay? But it does mean, hey, what does it mean to be willing to push through? What does it mean to say no? Okay? And I'm going to use a conversation that I had with a brother just earlier when he talked about what freedoms he could have. What does it mean? Okay, no, I can't have this or can I have that? We have to decide for that. What does it mean to hedge in, to take those things into check. And Paul says, you have to make it a priority. That talks about us for spiritual discipline. That's what we, those who have been at Pure Life know about spending quiet times and doing your Bible study and doing your devotion times, building your spiritual muscle. The more time you spend in the Word, the more time the Word watches you, that you read it, that you speak it, that you listen to it, the more it permeates your day. Okay? Now, you have to have the right heart you can do an intellectual understanding about the Word and not put in practice. Many do. That's why we have a bunch of seminarians. But if you're doing it from the right heart, and those remember from Rex Andrews, his prayer, open your word to my heart, to my heart to your word, which I still love, is an example of that, to allow it to change us. One of the things I appreciate here when I hear Pastor Jeff and Pastor Glenn speak is, you know, there's anointing. There's, when the Word is communicated, it changes us. 
You know that when you spend time in the Word, it changes you. It reprioritizes you. So that's part of that spiritual muscle. It trains you, trains you spiritually, but also becomes your focus. What he's talking about to the church, your focus needs to not be about you, but about others. Most of our days, we're focused on ourselves. Okay? We think it's a great day when we spend 10% of the time focused on others. That would be a miracle. Okay? God knows that. I mean, it seems like 10% is a huge amount of time when you look at it, because that's 2.4 hours. 2.4 hours of your every day spent focused primarily on others. Okay? When you look at that, it's not only the time, but it's your mental energy, your physical, everything. And so the whole point that Paul's saying is, I do whatever it takes. And that's the challenge for us. Are we willing to do it? We live in a society that's so much comfort focused for us. Give us entertainment focus. What does it do to help me? I need my downtime. I do, you know, and I'm guilty of that as much as another one. I've done, I've given, and I'm tired. I've put in a long day. I've driven some miles to get back home here, and I'm tired, and I want to just kind of relax. I want to focus on me. I want somebody to give to me. So we have them. We have television. We want television. But there's now, everybody uses their phone and want to do things. But it's still focused on self. And Paul says, no. Choose another path. Think of God and what he's done for you out of the gratitude as his motivation for you to say, hey, Jesus, what do you want me to do right now? I want you to talk to me. Maybe there's some people you need to pray for. Did you pray for your mom and dad? Or did you pray for your kids? Or did you pray for your coworkers? And, you know, you may go, oh, I didn't pray much during the day. I was distracted and focused. His mercy is in you. He says, okay, right now, we're here. You can pray right now. In the moment of now, because all we have is now. And so Paul says, we have now. What are we doing to redeem that time? And where's our priority? Where's our focus? So he talks about temperance. They use that word, temperate in all things. Okay? I love the quote from Leonard Ravenhill about, and as Pastor shared, others can, I cannot. Okay, others have license to do things I cannot. We have to know within each of us, not, that's the challenge. So in chapter 8, he talks about, hey, watch for your brother and watch for other needs where things are. It's not just about you. Okay, so it's along that same idea of when you're making decisions, look to see, just because you can do it doesn't mean you should do it. Is it the right thing? Does it glorify God? Okay, and is it going to be a stumbling block to your brother or not? Okay, and then he talks about in here. So he says, temperate, and he says, there's a fight. So on one hand, there's restraint. But if you look at an athlete, there is self-control. Okay, if you look at anybody who's a fighter in that sense, and anybody who does boxing or mixed martial arts, you can see somebody. And I remember one that I liked, um, from Canada, GSP, but that's initial gift, and he was a very controlled fighter. And the point that I appreciate, he had tremendous discipline. He, others would blabber all over the place, and he was restrained. He never reacted, almost like a machine in that way, not emotional, and he did only that which was necessary. Nothing was done in excess or not. And the principle here is 
we're to be restrained in indulging ourselves, temperate, beating our bodies, but controlled for the fight. And the focus is for an imperishable crown, which is in heaven, kept for us. That God has kept for us. And that's the priority he wants to focus. So he's addressing that. And you see this in this whole chapter. So first thing, he says, look at the rights that I have. But you know what? It's not about my rights. It's about the gospel. He wants them to cultivate the same thing. You know, know, when when you have an improper exercise of your liberty... Okay, it can adversely affect those who are weak in conscience. So if you think you can do what you want, somebody else may have a stumbling block with that. We have to be careful about that, that we do. But he himself was willing to do it because his priority for the gospel. He told them what he expected them. He said, this is what you're supposed to do. But really, I don't need it. Really, I don't need it. Because I know my God will provide everything that I need. And I'm trusting in him. Because I do it only for him. And if I have to work, I'll work whatever it takes. Because this is so important. Nothing else really, really matters. Okay, thanks guys. Let's, uh, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the example that Paul did, Lord. You know, it just amazed me how the calling that you had on his life, how much he suffered. He talked about all the beating, all the suffering he went through how he was still afflicted with that thorn in the flesh. Probably didn't see very well. And and he wasn't that much older than I when he died, Lord. And his life was full of suffering, but he had the joy of that relationship because he was focused on a different country. He was looking forward to a new city, a new Jerusalem. He knew where he had his hope, Lord. And I pray for each of us, the men here, that we have our hope focused on eternity to know who we are, whose we are, and what we're here for. And so, Father, help us to to do all things. I need your help, I know, and to, to subject my body, to beat it, to hold it like a slave, to, Lord, and that's what you want. You want us to surrender all to you because it is all about you. You gave all for us. How could we not do the same? Thank you, in Jesus' name. Amen.